Welcome to Stories That Stick, a podcast series about the stories that shape us. I understood that for my success, it was going to be the lessons I learned outside of the classroom rather than the lessons I learned inside. Hey guys, it's Ade here, your host for Stories That Stick. I hope you guys are doing okay. And by the way, this is a genuine question. So do let me know by direct messaging on any of the major social media platforms. We're talking Twitter, Instagram. We don't really use Facebook. Anyway, rarely do we have guests submitting themselves to be featured on the show. So we're very grateful that today's guest did. I had the privilege of speaking with Claude Williams, an award-winning entrepreneur, executive coach, and founder of Dream Nations. We talked about his journey so far and the books that inspired him along the way. Books such as Losing Your Virginity by Sir Richard Branson and The Promise of a Pencil by Adam Braun. Let's tuck into the episode, but if you are a brand new listener, please note that I start all conversations talking about death because I truly believe it informs how we live. So if you are triggered by this topic of death, do skip forward to where you hear the page turn and sound effect. Otherwise, do sit back and let's get into the episode. See you guys on the other side. Bye. Hey, Claude, welcome to Stories That Stick podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you? Hey, I'm doing really well, brother. Thank you for having me on today. You've definitely been on my radar for a long time, since Dream Nation days, way back when. But you're still doing that, right? <laughs> yeah, no, Dream Nation is still about. Uh, we have taken a little bit of a, well, not a little bit, we've taken a few massive changes of direction. And in all honesty, been on a bit of a down low while we rebuild and come back with a new strategy. But there's some special stuff in the works. Okay, well, we'll definitely get to that. But let's not get to that yet. Cool. So I often start, and for those who will come to this brand new as well. I often start talking about death. How do you feel about it? Personally, I've never done a fantastic job of being able to process, I think. But it also does give you, to an extent, a drive to know that the time we have on this earth, we really do need to make the most of it because we don't know when that's going to come to an end. And on top of that, we also want to make sure that, in my case, have the biggest possible impacts before that day comes. Mm, I hear that. So let's get into your first decade, zero to 10, which for Stories That Stick is your first chapter. Mr. Williams, who were you at this first decade? Okay, Help me out. so I was born in to be the second child of my parents. I have an older sister. I am a twin as well, so number two and number three came at the same time. And yeah, first few years were like pretty normal, it was normal as it can be. But what got interesting for me, I guess, where the story really started to form was later on at maybe around six or seven, finding out that I am dyslexic. And if you had a conversation with me as a child, you would see that there's a level of intelligence that was maybe above average. But if you looked at kind of how I was performing in the classroom, it was like well, well, well below average, like bottom of the class type of vibe. Hold tight for a second, Claude, because I know you definitely are a public speaker and you definitely have your your script on your life so far. (laughs) I'm going to try and get you off the beaten path. Okay. If that's okay. Please do. Was race ever an issue? Was masculinity ever discussed during this decade? Yeah. Um, I, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. Um, so she grew up in Nigeria. So it's just explained to me how, 
she never actually understood or experienced or even knew what racism was until she was basically in her 20s, essentially. And I was like, wow, that's amazing because my first experience of racism like happened in primary school. My Nigerian best friend, he was being bullied by one white kid when I came into school one day. I didn't quite understand what was going on and then yeah like when I finally got to the situation and heard what was being said I think that was the first time I've heard somebody talk about being black as a negative if you know what I mean yeah for sure what did you do when you heard that at first I was confused and then I got angry and then yeah then I started to I guess you know what I'll say this um, so I also grew up trained in martial arts like my parents came into karate pretty early uh, what how early are we talking it was very early very like early primary school days definitely, oh, definitely primary school it was because um, I was a huge Power Rangers fan so my parents decided like yeah like if you like Power Rangers then we're going to make you do karate so that's legit <laughs> so you ended up protecting your best Nigerian friend at the time from this white bully yeah The reason I mentioned the whole martial arts thing is because it does teach you constraint very early on. So when you understand your ability to cause harm to other people, it gives you a different level of awareness, responsibility and confidence. On one side, it's like, I don't want to do any of this to you. It won't be pleasant for you. On the other end, it's also like, if push comes to shove, then fine, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. How does dyslexia play into all of this in regards to your social cues at this age? Because I'm assuming this was still relatively new to you. Yeah. So in terms of social cues, I guess what it forced me to understand very quickly was that the standard pathways that most people take is not going to be for you. But in terms of like social interactions, it yeah, yeah. like dyslexia doesn't really show up in all honesty. Okay. Yeah, like the times when it shows up in a social scenario would have been, I guess, like MSN days where most of the communication was happening via written communication. Oh, uh, no, your chirps and game was not there, is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I, I did not say that uh, whatsoever. Because <laughs> um, uh, it, it was inferred what you don't say is what <laughs> What I'll say is this it's like, if you've got game, you've got game, even if you've got typos in it. So. <laughs> okay, say no more. Vim with your chat. But okay, so I normally send all my guests a very brief questionnaire asking them about the time, well, the funnest story that they read or even heard as a child, a teenager and adult. Claude, you said as a child, you can't remember any fun stories you read or heard. Yeah. Is that true? That is true. That is true. So, don't mean to stereotype us or anything, but Anansi the spider tends to always pop up as a story that brings back fun memories of being read or heard. I definitely heard Anansi. I know that is my mom's favourite story from her childhood. Um, <laughs> it just didn't really, I guess, resonate with me on that type of level for whatever reason. You know what? If I'm going to tell you about stories, it would be my own, actually. So... Okay. Um, once again having two sisters meant that I played a lot by myself and every day I would create these like really elaborate storylines with my toys mostly inspired by Power Rangers and that was just a standard thing for me to be able to do that and I do remember in secondary no in primary school rather 
they asked us to write a short story and for me it ended up turning into like this novel when it was like this big thing across the whole school of like oh wow have you seen the story that Claude has written and this and that and whatever so at one point I thought I was going to be an author despite being dyslexic amazing what was that story that got the school all salivated and like <laughs> <Yo>! <laughs> so I think do you remember the story vaguely very vaguely I remember there were two things that were important about it at the time one side was that yeah like Claude has written this like really interesting and long story about monsters Ooh. so that was one side of it and the other side of it is that both my school and myself my parents discovered that if I start to type things out rather than using a pen and paper then let's say 75 to 80 percent of the stuff that um, I struggled with because of my dyslexia kind of disappeared. Ooh. Well, let's get into your second decade, which is 11 to 20, and the second chapter for stories that stick. Claude, now this is a big decade, isn't it? It is. If you think about it, we're hitting puberty, college, university. Fundamentally, education is a huge part of this decade, Mm. but so is just trying to find ourselves as an adult. So therefore, our identity is really quite formed or cemented, maybe, yeah. in this decade. Would you agree? Without any doubt whatsoever. So talk to us. Paint some pictures. He was Claude. Um, he, on one side, like one thing that was very informative for me was, I guess at this point, my parents had started to take their faith really seriously. So yeah, I remember at around... 11 or so church became a huge part of like family life mix that in with some old school Jamaican values and you end up with like quite a conservative childhood so that was that um did you fight against it I mean you can't just say that was that because <laughs> <laughs> I know and I understand but for those who might not understand what does that really mean Jamaican and also conservative uh so it means what weren't you allowed to do you know what what was I allowed to do I was just on my head, I honestly can't think, oh yeah, this is what you couldn't do. Um, I knew, for example, and even to this day, like I don't even actually swear. Um, mm. That just got so like drilled into me at such a young age. Um, yeah, like... We Maybe s- it's easier to ask, how were you being disciplined for being in trouble because you did X? I actually didn't really get in trouble all that much. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) So, and I think that's kind of what I'm saying in terms of having that be so molded into you at such a young age. For me, it just became a mindset. It's just like messing around, getting in trouble, all this and that. It was not interesting to me. Like, I already knew at that point there were things I wanted to accomplish. Oh, really? So my first career path I wanted to do was to become a scientist and this later transformed into becoming some sort of software developer after my experience with the computers in primary school. And I was interested in that. I spent a lot of time on my PlayStation back in the day as well. But here's a question and before, so it interjects. Go for it. I'm just curious, but you're like, okay, so you knew you wanted to be a scientist before going into like software engineering development. Mm -hmm. Was it just because of your passion and your interest and, you know, disseminating things or was it the fact that you found yourself good at those subjects and therefore if you're good at something, you're kind of asked to do more of it? Hmm. I'm going to say both chicken and egg type of situation where I was naturally curious, which made me good at science, which then drew me to wanting to learn more about it, which then made me better at it. And yeah, virtual cycle from that regard. Yeah, and I hear that. And then with computers, like 
yeah, like I was just drawn to those because once again, it kind of opened up a whole new world where my brain felt like it wasn't on fire, basically, when education. Ah, is that how you're feeling otherwise? To on fire, maybe it's not the best description. And even to this day, if you put me in a situation where I've got no technology on my side, I will feel like I'm at a massive disadvantage to everyone else around me. Oh. So yeah, like when I'm able to basically use technologies, computers, laptops, etc., then it does feel like the playing field has been leveled. But take that away. Yeah, it, it's messy for me, put it that way. Fair enough. So where are we then in this decade so far? Because I'm hearing the career path and trajectory in which you want to do, which is software engineering development, right? No, actually. So part of the story that I I missed out was basketball. That became an absolutely huge part of my life from year seven, because um, when I got to secondary school and picked up a basketball for the first time, like I just fell in love with it. I wasn't very good, but um, I was in love uh, and I knew that much. Um, basically, I went on a journey from being rubbish to becoming pretty good to the point that I was one of the better players on the side of London. As a result, my school team were able to go on undefeated for two years, including winning the national championship as well. You went to a school that played basketball as a sport? I was lucky in the sense that the school I ended up going to, it is fantastic because it's also a Catholic school and meant that it had a decent amount of funding, put it that way. So you meant that we uh, had stuff like professional basketball coaches that taught us after class, I mean, after school rather, like we had pretty decent facilities, all that sort of stuff. So correct me if I'm wrong, this is what I'm hearing, right? Mm -hmm. Basketball wasn't necessarily what you're thinking career or was it because you said you were one of the better players this side of London? Does that mean that you were scouted? So yeah, like made it into like a few like special training camps and that things of that nature. But as much as me being one of the better players, I wasn't the best player on my team. There were two players that were clearly better than me. One of them had his own dreams of going to the NBA. So I guess that gave me a lot of perspective. The level of work that the one who had wanted to go to the NBA was having to put in. I'm like, I love the sport, but I don't love it that much. Um, So I understood that, yeah, playing in the NBA was not going to happen for me. What I then decided I was going to do as my career path was become a basketball coach with the goal of actually being able to coach in the NBA. So so I knew I wouldn't make it as a player, but I knew I was smart enough to be a coach. So I started to go down that route. What does that look like? What's the coaching route? So for me, it meant that I picked up my first coaching qualification at about 15 or 16, which was like a formal exam that I had to take. I started reading books on how to coach people, how to be a good leader, things of that nature. And that that's extracurricular stuff. Yeah. I remember having to travel all across London to get like the training education I wanted. So did you not find then school was a waste of time for you? No. So I guess I've always understood this. Pick a path for yourself and then pick the most logical way to get there. So in school, when we came to A-levels, for example, I began to pick subjects that I knew would support this goal. I did psychology, human biology, and physical education. What I was learning in the classroom was still valuable. And then, yeah, like what I was learning outside the classroom was then, I guess, the specific vocational stuff, essentially. And I've always, because of like, once again, having to take different pathways because of dyslexia the whole of my life, doing stuff outside of school hours to push you forward was a standard procedure for me. No, okay, I hear that. I want to talk about one story in which you submitted... Losing My Virginity by Richard Branson. 
It was an autobiography, right? That's right, yeah. You know, at first, I'm not going to lie, when you started off that sentence, like, I jumped on that way, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hang about, this uh, This took a, a slight yeah, left it turn. Went left. I mean, it is, yeah, an important story, but it's not that story I want to tell. Um, yeah, so Richard Branson's autobiography book, Losing My Virginity, mm-hmm. many of us do know who Richard Branson is, but it's still nice to have an overview of him and why this book specifically at the time made an impact in your life okay so i guess to carry on my story i was saying a little bit before when i realized i was going to become a coach one of the things that i did during college when i was injured was begin to organize uh, sports tournaments and training camps and i used to charge a little bit of money for people to come and attend them just so I could afford stuff and it was uh, my older sister when she was back from a university for the summer kind of said you know what Claude like you're actually running a business you should really think about entrepreneurship as a career path she then went out and bought me this book Richard Benson's own biography Lose My Virginity and told me to read it I didn't know much about him at the time but finding out that one he was dyslexic so there was already like guess that huge level of like resonating with a story from the get-go but then hearing about all these amazing adventures that he got to go on and then as a consequence the life he got to live like buying an island and all those type of things it just expanded I guess the size of my ambition in terms of what I want to go on to accomplish what I can do with the work I've got currently and just opened up like an entirely new pathway and direction for life for me. I guess it kind of nicely segues into what you currently do, the life you want to live, the impact you want to have, the legacy you want to leave. So let's go into your third chapter, which is 20 plus, and specifically where we find you sitting, well, remotely, you're in your room, I'm in my room, <laughs> having this conversation. Usually this is roughly the tail end of a university degree and then going into professional work and being this person that, well, you become. Right. So what happened? I was still very much so on the pathway of setting up a, hopefully to be world-changing sports company. So I went to Loughborough University, which is the number one in Europe and like top five in the world for sports, basically. The England rugby uh, squad trained there, don't they? And a lot of like British athletics. Basically, everybody does. If I'm not mistaken, in the last Olympic Games, if Loughborough University was a country based on the number of athletes that came from there, we would have come 13th. <laughs> what a stat. <laughs> so... I love that tribute. <laughs> um, oh, perfect. Yeah. What did you study there? I did sports management. So, okay. yeah, I was very much so focused at this career that I'm going to go down. I am going to take over the sports industry, but from a business perspective. Perspective, and I pretty much left that dream in my first year. Why? So another thing that my big sister did really influential for me was she forced me to buy a DSLR camera so that I could begin to take pictures at my own sports events, essentially, and then put those up on the Quotation Mark website, which at the time was MySpace, yes. as a form of uh, advertising and marketing. And yeah, I started to take pictures to kind of learn how to become a photographer. And I basically just realized that I was really good at photography as well. And um, to an extent, I was one of the very first people to start the whole set up a photography side hustle during university as like a means to make an income. Mm. And I realized that I was making so much more money from photography than I was making from my sports business. And 
that was now, I guess, my second business started to up. Uh, so started to begin to get this bit of a reputation for being business-minded entrepreneurial. Mm. What that resulted in me also going on to become the president of our Afro-Caribbean Society, ACS at Loughborough. It's funny, anyone who makes it post-uni, they always have an affinity or some form of role within the ACS of their uni. Yeah. Anyone that's making it to. But yeah, I <laughs> yeah. hear you. It's, it's, it's a very common trait. But what was interesting about ours was that it was a mess at the time. I came in and applied all the lessons that I had learned from business to the ACS and was able to really help it to flourish. Even to this day, like, it's still got a great rep. And I took those lessons, applied it to my photography company and decided to rebrand it to become like a multimedia agency. And um, yeah, like by the time I graduated, that's what I was doing full time. I love the fact that you still stuck to your course, though. Just, just about. <laughs> just about. Um, I was hardly ever at lectures. I did not take my degree seriously. And I think that was because I understood that for my success, it was going to be the lessons I learned outside of the classroom rather than the lessons I learned inside. Mm. But in order to be able to take advantage of those lessons, I had to be there. So I always did enough to be able to maintain my status as a student, essentially. And what I am actually seeing, the dots are joining quite nicely, is how Dream Nation then came to fruition mm-hmm. based off the back end of you being the president of ACS. I don't know if it is directly off the back end, but it's there's a synergy there. The DNA was definitely set through what I did um, for you being ACS president, no doubt. If I was never ACS president, then there would be no Dream Nation, no doubt about it. So talk to me, you've graduated. Graduated. I set up a photography multimedia studio up in um, the Midlands in Loughborough. Oh, so you stayed up there? Yeah, no, I stayed in Loughborough for seven years, actually, including my time studying. So I really like laid down some roots because, well, one, I realized how much cheaper the rent was there. So being able to set up a studio was a much easier feat in Lothbrod than it would be anywhere else. Mm. Two, honestly, I didn't want to come back to London just yet. I liked independence. I didn't want to go back to my parents' house, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually had a really couple big breaks in the year after graduation. I won some awards for my agency work, which was fantastic. I then was able to get my university to become my client, actually, which then gave me an even bigger incentive to stay in the Midlands. There's something to be said, whether or not people really ought to go to university and amass a certain amount of debt. Is it really ever worth it? Mm -hmm. But when I'm hearing your story, you milked it. Oh, yes. You milked (laughs) it. And if there's ever, ever a call to why university being in that space can be beneficial i think right now you're telling us it (laughs) loud and clear mate the key for me is if i'd went to go there as a traditional pathway then yeah none of these things would have happened like i said i made a calculated risk very early on that the value for me in university was going to be what happened outside the classroom and yeah Mm -hmm. so it's like if i was going to be there paying 3k a year i'm going to make sure i get my money's worth and I promise you I did. I promise. In fact, I can even tell you this. I don't mind saying it. But the university became a client one. So I started to make my tuition feedback from that. Two, I also managed to get an investment deal of my uni to invest into my company. And that equaled more than what I had paid in tuition fees, basically. Let's just say that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, amazing. And who was, who was around you at the time? Were you just a solo entrepreneur at this time? Or were you starting to build a team? Um, no. So from my very first business, the sports company, I realized that I needed somebody who was good with numbers. And that happened to be my Nigerian best friend that I mentioned before. 
So, yeah. Oh, the one all the way from primary school? The same one, yeah. He originally came on as like head of finance. And then by the time we kind of got to the university standpoint, I asked him to become my co-founder. And then when I began to realize that my admin skills was holding the company back, I actually asked him to take on the role of CEO while I focused on strategy and delivery. So that was uh, how things were running for quite some time. Where are we now? What's going on? Because I have mentioned, and I think the audience also would have picked up that I've mentioned Dream Nation a couple of times, mm-hmm. but you haven't mentioned it. You yeah. haven't mentioned how that came to fruition. Cut a long story short, media business was going really well in terms of all the metrics you'd measure a company by, but I wasn't happy. Um, I was very unfulfilled. So I decided one day to take a bit of a time off to do some soul searching. And during that time, I reconnected with reading, which is something that I had stopped. And reading about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X kind of made me realize that, you know what, I would love to use my skills and ability to do something that I felt more meaningful. Then like fast forward to later on in that year, this is 2013, I realized that it was going to be the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream. And I thought I would love to do something to celebrate that. And I'd also had like an experience of TEDx at the time and I thought this was great, but it could be done better. So yeah, on the 28th of August, 2013, which was the date of the 50th anniversary of uh, MLK's speech, I launched an event called I Have a Dream, brought in like people that inspired me and they all shared like their lessons and stories from the stage. And yeah, the event was amazing. It has stirred up something really inside me and I was like, you know what? I don't know how I can make this work as a business, but I want to try. So... I agreed with my business partner a few months later to step away from our media agency and yeah just from then pursue Dream Nation. No okay I hear that because I want to ask about when you had that conversation with the CEO your Nigerian best friend about stepping down from the multimedia agency did he continue it were there people that could well carry on the company? Um, It would have been possible but at the time he had just started a new relationship and he also wanted to pursue some of his own ideas. And funny enough, that relationship he had started is now his wife. And Amazing. he took a lot of those lessons that he learned from the media business and this entrepreneurship with us together to go and set up a company called Black Ballads, which you may have heard of. Hold tight for a second, Claude, because you can't see me, listeners, you can't see me neither. But I am grinning from ear to ear because to know that that is the person you're speaking of mm-hmm. i didn't even know amazing <laughs> honestly black excellence for sure yeah although one of you forbes featured running one of the best black publications that has ever ever existed in all honesty i feel like you've already given us plenty of stories but it will be remiss of me not to ask about your final submission which was the story of the promise of a pencil right that book for me, I guess, was a shot in the arm because we never got to go into much detail about Dream Nation, but a few years ago, I nearly quit. And that was due to like suffering from quite bad depression. And that book, it played a significant role in seeing the struggles that another entrepreneur went through to bring their dream to reality. Honestly, one of the most inspirational stories you'll read in terms of like what he had to overcome what he went on to achieve. For his case, it was even a charity. It wasn't even for profit. He did this to create this amazing charity that builds schools around the world in places where there is just no education. Hearing what he went through to bring that dream to reality was a big part of what helped me to get back on my feet, remind myself of what my original goals and dreams were, and just get out there and start over again.
where are we at now? What's the plan and how can we get involved? All right, cool. So where we're at now, um, at a very interesting place. I'm now taking the coaching side of the business to another level. I will say this, yesterday I was doing some executive coaching for the head of a UK bank and it's kind of opening up some new doors to some ideas that we're going to do. We are also, thank you, um, we are also developing some very interesting technology and research right now. So hopefully within the next few years, you're going to start to see the fruits of that. But yeah, the ultimate goal for me is that I am trying to look at how can you fuse psychology, science, coaching into this entirely new experience of personal development um how you can get involved that is yet to be announced but what i would say is go to dreamnation.co such dreamnation.co join the main list and when we have something to share i will let you know and there are some interesting things on the way the last question i often ask all my guests is if there is one book in which you can gift your loved ones what book would it be and why oh my gosh that is so hard. I love books with such a passion now. Um, one book, The Gift of Imperfections by Bernay Brown. Bernay is a flipping amazing writer. I say this all the time when I get an opportunity, but anything she has ever written, you should read. And I think with that, it talks about a lot of a lot of subjects that we don't really think about, but that really impact us as adults. So dealing with stuff like shame and fear and just really understanding, I guess, your own your own emotional state. And I think having a really great understanding of that will set you up to have a much better life for yourself and better relationships to the people around you and help you to go forward. So yeah, let's go with The Gifts of Imperfection by Bernie Brown. Honestly, Claude, this has been one of my favourite interviews this year. Admittedly, it's my first interview this year. But you know, we, we start as we need to go on, right? Mm-hmm. How can the listeners find you on the World Wide Web? I know you mentioned it earlier with dreamnation.co, but maybe your socials or anything like that personally. And, and when they do, is there anything you'd like us to do? Yeah, come find me. Uh, so I'm on Instagram, Claude underscore Williams underscore. So that is uh, C-L-A-U-D underscore Williams. The link in my bio that will link up to every other social platform that I'm on as well as uh, some other cool opportunities and some of the things that I've written recently. So come say hi, uh, ask me a question, or if you're looking at stepping your life up, uh, let's talk about coaching, see if that might be something for you and we can explore that together too. Amazing. And as always, guys, I will put all of everything we've discussed on the show notes. So look out for that. And please do follow us as well at Black Ticulate across all social media platforms, including Clubhouse. Oh, so you know what? I actually have one thing that I just totally forgot about. Sure. Uh, guys, if you um, are interested in um, potentially having a coaching session with me, go to dreamnation.co forward slash feedback and let me know what you thought about this episode. And that will give you the opportunity to be selected for having a free coaching session. So you can check it out too. Amazing. Claude, once again, thanks very much. And guys, take care and stay tuned for another episode of Stories That Stick. Bye. Take care, guys. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it. And if you'd like to be featured on the podcast, please do get in touch.